We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up? What's up on a Monday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast. We've got Weldon Rodenberg back in his normal Sunday slot as we recap all things Ole Miss Georgia Tech, how Jackson Dart played the running game, why this was a little bit indicative, indicative of the culture. Wayne Kiffin and Ole Miss has built a wide open, uh, wide open-ish, I should say, SEC West, and uh, some theories on the transfer portal and quarterbacks and how we've uh, and and how that relates to what we've seen play out in college football through the first three weeks of the season. So great show is always great to have Weldon back on uh, this side of the United States. Of course, we have Soccer Corner at the end, and uh, buckle up, we're back. So before we get to that, though, wanted to remind you, podcast is brought to you by Mims Insurance. Mad Mims is an independent insurance agent based in Oxford. Everything's expensive right now, gas, groceries, you name it, inflation's high. You don't need to be losing money just because you don't know how the ins- how to approach the insurance process and how it works. It can be confusing. It can be overwhelming. Which agency do you go with? How do you get the best quote? Who's treating you the right way? Who's trying to one-up you and get into your wallet a little bit? Matt Mims eliminates all of that. He's an independent insurance agent, licensed anywhere in the state of Mississippi. So if you're anywhere in Mississippi, he can help get you insured. All you do is you give him a call at 601. I can't get it pulled up. There we go. 601-218-7854. You give him a call. You tell him I sent you. He will get understand whatever it is you need insured, uh, house, boat, car, life. I don't know what you people have going on, but whatever it is you need insured, he will shop your he will shop your quote around to ten different agencies, find the best one that fits you, the most affordable one, and he brings it back to you, and boom, problem solved. Isn't that easy? That doesn't sound overwhelming, does it? All you literally have to do is dial one phone number 601-218-7854. Great guy, been a friend of mine a long time. Big old miss guy based in Oxford, loves helping people out, loves doing business with other Ole Miss people. I wouldn't steer you the wrong way. He's someone I trust, and he's going to make sure you have a seamless insurance process. You're treated fairly, and you're going to get the best quote possible. It's a win-win situation all around. Check out my friend Matt Mims at Mims Insurance. Appreciate them sponsoring the show. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Getting all kinds of questions about signups and promo codes. That is always great news as more and more people are turning to Skybox. This is usually when you kind of see the uh, 
the turn towards the, my friends at Skybox. You get about two week, two three weeks into the season, guys start losing some cash on their own, and they're like, you know, I don't want to, want to give the professionals a try, which is always great. Skybox are the professionals. They are going to make sure they're the only consistent way to profit in the long run is really what it comes down to. You're not going to do it in the long run off your own brain. They're the professionals. They send you a nice, clean spreadsheet via, or I say spreadsheet, picks, list of picks via email every week confidence ratings, all kinds of different stuff in there. And they're going to make sure you bet smart, you bet wisely, and you're on the right side more often than you're not. You can choose a picks package that fits your price range, month long, season long. I'd recommend just signing up for the all year, all sports pass. It's going to pay for itself and then some, but whatever it is, they're going to have something that fits your price range. You can even try it for a day. So stop losing money. Stop having your bookie text you on Monday mornings, asking you to square up and you text him for a change and say, Hey, where's my income at? So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Once you decide on a package, use the promo code RIPPEE, R-I-P-P-E-E, and that will get you 20% off your purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Rippy Rights football correspondent, Weldon Rodenberg. A lot to talk about from week three of college football. We'll, of course, start and probably spend most of our time on um, Ole Miss's destruction of Georgia Tech and Atlanta over the weekend. And uh, what we thought would be the Rebels' first true test of the season, it didn't necessarily amount to to that by any stretch. Bounce around the league. Um, and then, obviously, the fastest-growing segment on American soil at the end. You got the Saints jersey ripping there. Tough one today. Uh, how are you doing? How are we feeling? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of fuming from what happened in that game earlier. Uh, that was just depressing. I mean, just the whole thing. Oh, that was just a sad game to watch. Uh, I mean, we made so many mistakes, and that that game with with Tampa has been fiery for the last few years since Tom's gotten there. And truly, every game has come down to comes has come down to uh, who turns the ball over more. And we had five turnovers today. And of course, Mike Evans is still the biggest piece of shit in the league. Uh, that is consistent with him. I'll give him credit for that. Um, so that I mean, it was a crazy game. I mean, we made some. Terrible, terrible plays. Jameis didn't play well. Ingram fumbled. And all even with all that, our defense played well enough to win. But, I mean, there were some just crazy calls. And I know it's, it's not a Saint-specific thing because the NFL has some serious NFL. Really, it's not even officiating problems. I think they have a rule problem. And I don't feel like the fans or the officials or even the coaches totally understand, you know, who's defenseless and what is actually an unnecessary roughness, you know, with some of these helmet-to-helmet hits or, you know, defenseless player penalties. Because, I mean, they had someone, the Tampa that was weird, the Saints that were weird. And if no one understands them, you're always going to be frustrated with the outcome. So, yeah, it was that was a frustrating game from all accounts. Um, and, you know, just a final fuck Mike Evans. I hate him. <laughs> Dude, the, the funny part, so you're, it's an interesting point you make about the helmet-to-helmet stuff, and you're seeing it in college too. I mean, I think we saw a little bit of it with Troy Brown's ejection in the Ole Miss game. It's like, yeah. one, you're correct. There's so, like, some people, like, there doesn't seem to be a clear understanding among officials about the rule. But there's, like, to me, we've gotten to a point to where, there's like with the way the rules set up, whatever it may be, they I know they've tweaked it a couple of times. There's just a certain gray area where you have these collision plays where the offensive guy kind of lowers his angle and the defensive guy's already, you know, half a foot from him. So what are you actually going to do to where you get these crap targeting unnecessary roughness calls that you really can't fix 
but it seems like they're just cool with it because the safety pros, I guess, outweigh the cons of the game kind of sucking in that moment and people bitching about it for a while. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like there's like kind of that select area where it's like you have two or three of those, it seems like a week that are just egregious. And you're like, what's the, what's the guy supposed to do? And everyone just kind of throws their hands up and they're like, I don't know. No, absolutely. I mean, to show that I'm not totally biased, I mean, in the Saints game today, Jameis throws a pass to Alave, and Alave catches it on his back, like probably a half a yard from the first down. Levante David comes from behind and hits him in the back. And they called a, a personal foul penalty, and it's like they said it was a defenseless receiver, you know, forcible contact the head or neck area. But in reality, that was the only target. He's trying to keep him from getting a first down. I mean, I don't understand what he's supposed to do. There's just not a lot of leeway for defensive players to make, you know, a split-second decision just because that's the name of the law. And then, of course, on the other side, one of the worst I've ever seen was Roby coming across and using his shoulder to hit Cameron Brait to try to tackle him, of course, force him not to get a first down. And they called unnecessary roughness because his shoulder – taps or hits Brate's helmet, who is completely ducked down. Honestly, Brate's making more contact than Roby was because he missed the tackle in the first place. And they call a 15-yard penalty. It's like, what? what's the point of that? That's not safe helping anybody on either side. It's not defending anybody. And in college, it's obviously it's even worse because they eject the player, right. which still to this day makes no sense. It's like they tried to kind of meet everybody in the middle by letting them stay on the sidelines as if anyone gives a shit about that, they'd probably rather be in the locker room. Um, so, yeah, it's just a, it's not necessarily a, a bad officiating deal to me. It's just a lack of understanding from a fan's perspective, from an official's perspective, even from the broadcasters, nobody knows what to do with any of these penalties. And they they seem to be given at such a inconsistent, you know, basis that it just makes it very frustrating for all involved you know because obviously the NFL is such a great product college football it is what it is but um, it's just a little frustrating that that's like really the only issue that we've had so far with any of these games last thing on the Saints real quick I did you know you mentioned you bring up the Mike Evans part I was on red zone all day I you know I was watching that game clearly like when it would come on but I wasn't super locked into it but I did see like a video clip of kind of like the skirmish, if you'll call it. I So then Jeff Darlington puts out a quote from the Bucks locker room after the game where it's like, you know, he, they like the rivalry between him and Latimer. Was it Lattimore? Who was Lattimore, it? Yeah, Lattimore. So I, yeah. Like, what's the – like, asked him a question about the rivalry, and he's like, you know, some of it's competitive. He was emotional today. Nobody respects you when you're throwing punches. And it's just like revisionist history. This if dude. you watch the video, <laughs> he's sitting there getting – I mean, yes, he's kind of getting up in the guy's grill or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But, they, like, he's the one that goes up and then just decks him and starts kind of beating the hell out of him. It's just like – it was so funny that just the blatant, like, yeah, no one's going to notice this. So I'm just going to say he was throwing punches. And it's like clear as day on video that that wasn't even close to the case. Yeah. I respect it. The, the guy is absolutely delusional. Like, <laughs> as if he does not realize. I mean, this is not the first time he's done this. This is actually the third time. Remember, I don't know if you remember the video when Jameis was, like, getting after Lattimore. And Lattimore kind of shoves him. This. And then the single dirtiest hit maybe I've ever seen in a football game is Mike Evans coming from the middle of the field and absolutely waylaying Lattimore for not like he was like hitting Jameis. He literally like kind of like shoved him just a little bit. And then two years ago in New Orleans, Mike Evans literally yanks Lattimore's helmet off and throws a full on punch. 
And then today, of course, Fournette is the one who throws the first shove. Lattimore shoves back as if, you know, while they're yelling at Brady. And then Mike Evans comes from the sideline and absolutely just, you know, tackles Lattimore again. And then he acts like he's the one and like the Bucks are the victims. When this all started because Brady was bitching and complaining about not getting a flag. So, I mean, it's just amazing. And then, of course, like, Lattimore gets ejected for basically no reason. I mean, yeah, he pushed Fournette back after he pushed him, but, like, he was not the instigator of the issue. It was 100% Evans and Fournette, and they end up ejecting him, and then they ask questions after the game of why, and you know, the officials gave some nonsense response because they probably just didn't want to have any accountability towards the situation at all, which is typical of them. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it was just a weird game and it completely flipped. All the momentum was on the, the Bucks after that. And then they just kind of ended up taking it to the Saints. But yeah, that's what kind of games you get. The NFC South, especially, I mean, Carolina, not as much. But those other three teams, I mean, these are games you get. I mean, they hate each other, like legitimately hate each other. Yeah, it, it makes for fun and compelling television. It was really a good day of football um, for two days. You had some very strange results, I thought, or I should say strange results, some strange almost results in the uh, in college over the weekend. We'll, of course, start with Ole Miss. Um, they Rebels destroy Georgia Tech 42 to nothing over the weekend. It really wasn't a game from the opening whistle. I mean, Ole Miss really just robotic, robotically kind of dismantled them, right? You go straight down yeah, the field. I think it was a five-play drive, right? I think it was at four Evans runs, a pretty good dark. It was like play. a minute and 28 seconds. Seven nothing. Then <laughs> Not even. three and out, block punt when they were, weren't even really like trying to get after it. It was like punt safe. Um, and then all of a sudden. It was their third. I think it was Georgia Tech's like second or third punt that's been blocked this season. And third, I, I believe. And yeah, third. And then Kiffin said, I, I saw that they were uh, not in punt block, that they were in punt safe. And Cedric Johnson realized that their their defender, their shell guy, just decided to step up for some reason. And he just went and basically just took the ball off the punter's foot. It was um, amazing so to watch. It was amazing. The TV camera angle was, it had him right there. I mean, he was dead in the middle of the screen. And you just see him kind of lumber straight to the punter, straight to the punter, and no one touches him. And, you know, Cedric Johnson said it after the game, too. He goes, you know, we were just, he goes, we're on punt safe. I was just kind of running. I got halfway there. And I was like, I might be able to block this. Then I got you. I, was like, I blocked this. Like, I mean, what a funny so feeling bad. to have in the middle of the game. To be yeah, like, like it was oh, so wow. Bad. It, it just like it surprised everybody. Georgia Tech, not exactly a uh, well-oiled machine there. And another funny aspect of that play was like you could tell that uh, Cedric Johnson kind of in a split second kind of had the panic of like, do I pick this up? I know my knee's on the ground. I kind of picked it up like hot potato. It hadn't gotten back up yet. You saw Kiffin kind of tell it like pull him to the side it's and was tough. like, hey, like either someone else pick it up or you make sure you're off the ground. But it was just funny to see that like split second internal struggle he had where he's like, shit, what do I do with this? No, um, it, it's, it's really tough. I went, I was in a playoff game. The, uh, the last game of my senior year, we were in the semifinals of the playoffs and the other team fumbled the ball. And my buddy playing linebacker is on the ground while our other linebacker is running about to pick up the ball and go. And then just out of sheer, you know, just reflexes, he just picks up the ball. And we're like, oh, no, like you have to you have to just let it go. Like we're about to return it for a touchdown. It's difficult. You saw on the, on the sideline that you can see the angle of Kiffin, like he's smiling and giving. he's telling him like, hey, like you got to stand up. But he's not – you can't be mad about it. I mean, he made the punt block. Like it's, it's just sheer reflexes to just go grab the ball immediately, which is why the NFL has the rule if you don't get touched because it just makes sense for the flow of the game. Oh, my God, the Cardinals just scored a touchdown. 
Fabio um, in the last play. <laughs> I'm like a squirrel looking this way and that way. Um, I was d- just, you know, getting off the punt and towards the game. I-, I think we may have been wrong a little bit. I-, I think that Georgia Tech maybe has the most athletes that Ole Miss has faced, but I think the most competent team they'll have faced will be Tulsa next week. I mean, the Georgia Tech is bad. They're really bad. They are very, very bad. And honest to God, with the way I didn't see a ton of this game, I know game day was there, but you could make an argument for Troy. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how they compared oh. to Tulsa. I know Tulsa blew out Jacksonville State in the fighting Ridge Rods over the weekend. But, yeah, it really has not turned out the way we thought. Um, and then another piece off of that, I guess, just kind of starting with a broad thought. I know this was – I was listening to Neil and Chase's segment on the postgame show before uh, I went on, and I sh- kind of shared the same sentiment, but they were talking about how – you know, maybe this team's ceiling is higher than we thought it was. And it's partially what they've shown, I think, through three games in pieces. But a lot of it is everything around them and everyone else looking kind of pedestrian and human. And look, I know I, I'm not ready to declare Alabama, you know, dead and behind after a 20 to or whatever, a one point win or whatever it was at Texas. But point being, there seems to be outside of Georgia when it, as it pertains to the SEC West, a little bit more parity and a little bit more wide openness with LSU down, Auburn looking like a disaster. A&M can't do the whole offense thing. Arkansas, I thought they were pretty good until yesterday. So point being, like, their ceiling could be higher by default. Whatever flaws this team has, they play really good defense and they run the football and that will travel anywhere. And so I think that coupled with everything else around them, I think their ceiling could potentially be higher than maybe we thought at the beginning of August. I completely agree. And, you know, I think you're right in saying it's not necessarily, <clears throat> excuse me, an Ole Miss centric deal. Like we've learned so much about them. I think it's a lot more about the rest of the league. And it's not like these teams are terrible. I mean, I don't think Mississippi State's a bad team. I don't, I think LSU is definitely, you know, they won that game. I'm not even sure they were the better team in that game. Um, and then, you know, A&M, they still have athletes. They, they have not figured out offense at all, but they still have athletes. And then you know what Alabama is. And Auburn, you can just kind of write them off. Um, and I do think, and we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, I think it's why Kiffin is being so hard on the quarterbacks, or Dart specifically, because he knows that their best way to win football games is to just not turn the ball over, play really sound defense what they've played so far and run the ball really effectively and have Dart make plays when he needs to make plays. So when you see him throw an interception like that at the end of the half, you know, Kiffin's just sitting there like that's the one thing we can't do, like to maximize our ability to have a special season or whatever. Um, it's, I mean, it's tough. And I understand where he's coming from, but yeah, I mean, I think, it's a week-by-week week league, similar to the NFL. I mean, that's how tough these teams are, home and row. But, yeah, I think you can have a, a different feeling about this season. You know, it may be a little premature, but they do have some things going in their favor. I'm uh, – yeah, they do. And I think, you know, you mentioned the, the – like we talked about it being kind of everyone else and everything else around them. I will give them credit. I thought they'd be a pretty good running team. And I get it. They haven't necessarily played anyone, you know, with a daunting front seven. But Georgia Tech did give Clemson some problems. A lot of that was they didn't seem to really respect uh, DJ's ability to throw the ball down the field of consistency. 
but like their running game looks even better than I expected. And I think that's mostly the Quinshawn Judkins aspect of this. I thought the kid would be pretty good. I thought he would be in the mix this year, but I mean, he's the clear number two back behind Evans. You could almost call it a one, a one B situation with how good he looks. And so that's the part of it coupled with them being pretty good defensively. I think I, I we'll see against Kentucky kind of how some of the linebacking stuff holds up, but they yeah. seem to be giving a lot um, I say a lot more some different looks than they did a year ago. They're lining up guys in different places. They're looking a little bit more multiple and they've been as good as advertised. I've thought. And so I guess those things coupled with that makes me think like, okay, maybe this team could be better than I thought. Of course it will kind of all eyes are on quarterback. And I guess that's a decent place to start with this game. Uh, Jackson dart gets the start. It was his game the entire time. Look, Altmaier before the game got out of hand came in for one play because uh, Dart's helmet got popped off. But it was his game, and it was similar. The first half, I thought, went similar to Troy, where it's like, I don't really know how to evaluate this because they are running all over Georgia Tech, right? I think with seven minutes and change to go in the third, in the second quarter, Ole Miss had attempted three passes. Yeah. Uh, and it had the ball <laughs> a lot. Like, it wasn't one yeah. of those things where it was like, oh, they're only on their second or third possession. They'd had the ball a lot. And so it was like, how do you tell anything about this? And he made a couple of nice throws and they were moving the ball well. And I was like, this is a good half. Then they run the pseudo two minute drill type of thing. They weren't really in a hurry until they got a first down or two. And he makes a good re decision on the third down to keep it and get the first down. He makes a nice throw toward the sideline. I forget who it was. It wasn't Heath. I can't remember off the top of my head. Right. Then a backbreaking mistake that just put a damper on the entire half, much similar to this truly second half where it's like, all right, this seems to be the story of 19-year-old Jackson Dart. A lot of the talent's there. Some of the you know more rudimentary mistakes are being made, and then he's good for one terrible decision. You hope per game, if you're them, I guess you know at this point it's kind of looking like per half. Yeah. But he did respond, and he looked really damn good in that third quarter. And I think that if there was any doubt, what no matter what Kiffin says or doesn't say regarding the quarterback competition, um, I think he solidified this as his football team in the second half of that Georgia Tech game. Between the way he threw the ball in the third quarter, the kind of truck stick thing, he was kind of in everyone's ear the entire time. It just kind of felt like his team, and that kind of put that in cement for now. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I thought he played well. You know, obviously you have to look at that pick, and that's really tough in a, in a scoring position for the team to kind of really, I mean, whether it's a touchdown or field goal, put completely put the game away. I mean, I, in my opinion, it was already put away just from what you could see on the field. But, um, yeah, I, I thought he played fine. Yeah, he responded really well in the third quarter. Uh, I thought he made pretty good decisions, whether he was keeping the ball or giving it to the running backs, throwing out to the receivers. Uh, he looked a lot more comfortable throwing the ball downfield accurately. Um, he still needs to put a little bit of air under some of these deep balls. But, yeah, I thought he played well, and they didn't ask him to do too much. Um, I think they asked him to run a little bit more than I would like to see, but, you know, that's their coaching and not mine. And he, he seems to be very capable of doing it. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I usually take what Kiffin says after games in press conferences at face value, but I, I'm kind of done listening to the quarterback stuff. I mean, this is his team by far. Um, I, I don't really know why the conversation's even continuing you know, maybe there's like we like we mentioned last week. You know, there could be more to it that we don't know. But I mean, this is Dart's team. I the rest is kind of is what it is. They can kind of say what they want to, but I don't really believe it at all anymore. No, I don't, and I don't think anyone with eyeballs watching this team does either. And this is kind of you know we've done this for what a year 
two year. I mean, Kiffin's been here two years, but like kind of really closely watching the press conference year, year and a half now. He does these things where he just kind of has these quirks and like you can call it entertaining. You can call it annoying, whatever you want to call it. He has these things that he just doesn't let off where it was just remember last year, like at times where he would just kind of randomly take a pot shot at the crowd size. And it's like, really, why are we still harping on this man? You're, you're, you're not in two. Like what, what's going on? Right. Here? This is turning into one of those things. I mean, look, he got asked, he got the opportunity in the post game to say, is this Jackson team when Nana starter? And he kind of gave the, I don't know, we'll evaluate it after the film. He got asked another question about it. And he said, yeah, we just decided to go with Jackson first because he practiced well. I thought Luke would have done great if he went first too. And it's just becoming this Kiffin thing to where is, look, he's really smart and he's really cutting edge on a lot of things. But it's one of those things where I would just wonder if he thinks he's like, oh, I'm going to play 3D chess here by never naming one. I don't have to actually ever say it, like type of thing. One of those weird Kiffin quirks, that seems to be what this is turning into because I just don't see a world over the next three, four games until th- unless things really start going south in which Luke Altmaier runs out first and plays significant playing time. It just doesn't, that doesn't seem to make any sense at this point. I don't see it, and if I saw it – actually you know happened on the field I, w- I would have like a lot of questions and uh, questions that he would have to like really answer like it would be I mean I don't even know I mean he didn't have to do anything but it would be borderline you know and I don't want to say disrespectful but disingenuous if he continues to you know put Altmaier in real game time situations at this point I, I wouldn't understand it um, and obviously he knows a lot more football than any of us talking about it uh, but I think, you know, it's kind of like a – it's be difficult to fool us on this one. Uh, I thought he played really well. I, you know, the interception is obviously frustrating um, because it's clear that that's an issue he's been dealing with in the spring and the fall and even in the games this year. But at the end of the day, he's running the offense really efficiently. I feel like their tempo has been really good. I don't feel like Dart is holding them back with any – you know, understanding of what they need to do. I think everyone on the team believes in him, and they, they seem to really enjoy playing for him. You can kind of see it on the sidelines. Not that they don't like Altmaier or anything like that, but th- this is Dart's team, and I, I would be very confused if it's not the case moving forward. And kind of getting into a little bit of the details of how the game went and how he played, I agree. I think he played well. I, I hate to use the whole he played better than his stat showed type of thing. But really, even in that first half, you know, aside from that one decision, I thought he played pretty well. It was just, again, you, you didn't feel like he could show much because of the way they were running the football. And I think that's why you'll really learn a lot about Dart. You'll learn a lot about this team against Kentucky because I think they could have running success on Kentucky. But it's not going to be to the level that they've had you know, in these first three games, like they're going to have to air it out more and they're going to have to get, you know, rely on the passing game more consistently. But I thought he played pretty well. I mean, there was a couple of throws where you just kind of wonder how many quarterbacks in the country can make that throw. I mean, the, the, the arm talent and the accuracy on some things is, is really remarkable. I know he missed a deep ball way, way off. And so, you, it's fine. yeah, exactly. Like he fresh a lot of what made him the 2020 high school, you know, national Gatorade player of the year. And, you know, Buchanan called me a couple of times during the game. He was just, I guess, watching it by himself at a bar and was kind of fired up. And like, <laughs> he, so like even he was just pointing out stuff. So, you know, the, the kind of, they were in the pistol, the reverse bootleg where 
they kind of ambushed him from that side and he ends up slinging it on the ground, like trying to get rid of it or whatever. Like that yeah. wasn't a great decision, but Buchanan also mentioned like the way that apparently that's played where if the linebacker just comes dead bull rushing at you, you're supposed to get rid of it immediately. Like they, they just kind of won the play at that point instead of continuing to extend it. Cause he was like, basically, unless you get super lucky, only really bad things can happen if you're trying to make that guy miss and get out of there, just immediately bail out. And he continued to try to, you know, extend the play. And I feel like, you know, that couple with the decisions is really what they're trying to dial back, right? Him trying to do too much on every single play and kind of play hero ball on every single play. And I think part of that's being young, but don't you think part of it is the way he was programmed at USC? There was an interim coaching staff. He gets, you know, a shot because of a pseudo injury and then kind of goes back and forth with Slovis when he comes back from injury. He was basically in fuck it mode the entire time. Like, what does it matter? Their offensive line's getting killed. They lost two receivers left and right. I mean, if you look at his highlights and, and watch actually a lot of the games from the USC, it's a lot of off script stuff where he's throwing on the run way down the field and it works. But if you'll notice, a lot of those helmet colors were Oregon State, Washington State. Like, that doesn't really yeah. work in this state <laughs> type of thing. But like, I just wonder, it didn't matter then. <laughs> You know, he wasn't playing for the coach that he was going to play for, you know, in six months that he stayed at USC. That was just right. him succeeding in such like a sea of dysfunction type of thing. I just wonder if, if if that led to this programming maybe being more hard to kick or those habits harder to kick because he played, you know, better part of six games playing that kind of with that reckless abandon. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I never really considered uh, the fact that he was playing football with really no pressure. Uh, and that's that's something that is freeing for a quarterback, but also probably a little uh, a little fake, I guess you could say. Yeah. And now that he's he's leading a team and there's real stakes to this season, whereas USC, there was nothing. It was a total free shot on his part. True freshman injuries all around. You know, it, it's a difficult deal that, you know, a difficult way to play the game. And now he's playing with, you know, like I said, real stakes you know, real importance to the season. And now he's got to really kind of hone in some of that, like you said, fucking attitude, because that's exactly how he was at USC. Um, he's got to play under control and within the offense and really, you know, lead the team rather than just kind of like feel the game out for himself. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think his decision-making hasn't been terrible. I think there's a few things you can see here and there that, you know, Maybe he's kind of forcing it, but I've th I've thought that some of his deep shots have been the right shots to take. Maybe he doesn't hit them, but it's not like he's throwing into triple coverage, you know, because that guy's just rolling deep and he wants to air it out. I feel like he's been making the right decisions on that, but they also haven't been they haven't been asking him to do too much of it. So when it's there, it's there, and he he needs to take it. I mean, that's one of Kiffin's biggest pet peeves is you know when the shot's there, you better take the shot. That's there's a reason it's there because he's draw drawing it up that way. Um, so I've been impressed. Uh, I mean, it's it's a small sample size against three really bad teams, but I think it's pretty clear that uh, the ceiling of this team will be kind of determined by the ceiling of his play. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where it's like you, none of the stat lines again would blow you away, and it's nothing but overwhelming. But like the small flat, like the small like pieces we've been able to see with them throwing the ball, I've been impressed more so than I've been underwhelmed. Um, it's really other than decision-making, I've been pretty impressed overall. I know he's missed on a couple of deep balls through the first couple of games. And, you know, that kind of is what it is from that standpoint. But yeah, I just, I just wonder, 
like another piece of it too is is the running aspect right you didn't get to see the running piece of it because of the torn meniscus at usc and you know they didn't really use it a ton in the first two games i wonder how big of an x factor that becomes because you saw a couple as you alluded to earlier a lot more design runs for him as well he also scrambled a couple of times there's that third and 16 on like the second or third drive of the game where they got behind the sticks and he picked that one up you know not that Altmaier doesn't have that because he did make some nice throws in that sugar bowl on the run, but it just seems to be an element of his game that maybe the other guy doesn't have that can also be pretty effective. You know, similar to Corral, they ran him too much in a couple of games, surely by default, there was nothing else, but Corral's feet were a real, real weapon that I don't feel like was fully on display until 2021. And that's another element yeah. of guard. And I just wonder how they'll, is there, a, like, I wonder if there's a way to use that to mitigate the bad decision-making like, Hey, instead of trying to chunk this off well to one side or vice versa and running, just take off and run with it. Like, do you think they'll maybe live with him kind of running with it, taking the hit? I imagine they weren't cool with the truck stick. It'll be a sick Instagram, <laughs> but that type of yeah. stuff, do you think they'll ever like, do they think about it that way? Do you think they'll live with that? If it's just like, please God, don't throw this, like just, just well, tuck it and run. Yeah, I think they would. Um, I mean, I definitely don't think they wanted to get hurt doing stuff like right. that. Like you said, you know, you maybe call cool it down just a little bit. Uh, I will say I've been pretty impressed with Dart's running ability. He's a little more athletic than I think I gave him credit for. Um, he's definitely a north-south guy, um, you know, because he's not not a lot of wiggle with him. Whereas when you saw Matt run, I mean, I like when you watched this Tennessee game a few days ago, I mean, he really – like has a great, you know, awareness as a runner, instincts as a runner. I mean, he can kind of see the holes and and make it happen. Whereas Dart is kind of like see space, run to it. I'm pretty big and pretty athletic. Um, so yeah, I think they'll probably live with him running. They they've clearly got kind of that package where it's you know third and ten, third and twelve. Let's try to get eight yards maybe, and we'll go for it. They have that quarterback draw in their back pocket. I think they probably went to it a little bit more than I would have liked to see, especially against Georgia Tech. Um, you got three pretty good running backs. Maybe let them take some of that load uh, off the quarterback. But, yeah, I, I've been impressed with his ability to run the ball as well. But, uh, they'll probably keep it up, but maybe dial it down a little bit more when the game become a little bit more serious. And, you know, the, the times he was able to throw the ball, they finally got Watkins involved, right? He had this first catch of the season in that game, and he was definitely more of a factor than at any point that's been this, this year. It was a little bit of a quiet game from Trigg. Um, Malik Heath made a couple of plays. I thought Jonathan Mingo played really well. You know, that you're starting to see, like, hey, if this guy can stay healthy, I think you would have seen this version of Mingo and kind of the next step he's taken last year had he not had that injury. I guess that was pre-Alabama game, right? I think he got announced right. But the week before Alabama. Yeah, they yeah. weren't going to have him. He played – I thought he's looked the best of the receivers at all. You know, they're not necessarily dynamic at that position, but as we've talked about, I think, since the beginning of camp, that I think they have more SEC caliber receivers, right? You don't feel terrible about having Malik Heath out there. You know, uh, Watkins, I thought, has looked pretty good in the small sample size. And I think another testament to that is, too, is they didn't have um, – Oh, God, the UCF kid. Why am I blanking on this? Robinson, Robinson. Jalen Robinson. Jalen Robinson, I, I don't know what his injury was. I'm assuming it's nothing too major, but he couldn't go. And you didn't really miss a beat, whereas last year, and I know they lost Mingo early in the season, but, like, remember last year they lost Drummond at Auburn, and it was like, my God, this passing game is just completely shot. So right. they have more dudes. They have more average to slightly above average SEC receivers. And then 
I think the kind of X factor in all of this, as far as the receiving core is how consistent of a target over the middle of the field can Michael Trigg become like how, how much of a role can he have in this offense in his first, I guess, real year of college football after, you know, kind of sitting and watching most of last year. But I think they are better at receiver, despite not necessarily being overly dynamic. Yeah, they definitely are better. Um, they, they're definitely healthier. Um, I think they have some depth of guys. They, they feel very comfortable playing. Uh, I don't know if it's definitely a very high ceiling upside group, but I think you're seeing the best of certain players. I think Mingo has been great. I think Heath has done well for what they've asked him to do. Watkins are trying to get the ball to a little bit more in different spaces. I mean, he was in the backfield for that first catch, kind of what they used to do with Elijah Moore, have him run that like running back post route, which is, I mean, that's a tough route to, to cover if you're a linebacker and you end up on him. Uh, and then I don't know what the deal with is with Robinson. I'm, I'm starting to get a weird sense of maybe he's not up to the SEC level of whether that's off the field, on the field. And when I say off the field, I mean just practice, you know, not like actual issues. Because um, there's been weird stuff with him throughout the whole preseason and into this game. And, you know, maybe he was just injured. But I'm not looking to expect a whole lot out of him because he just hasn't, you know, produced a whole lot. So it's kind of J.J. Henry will have to step up. And you saw him kind of late in the game get some action. Not that they really like what he can do. So, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe not, you know, super, super high ceiling on this group. But they're, they're getting and playing you know, the best that we've seen kind of quite a while from certain guys out there. And the, uh, the kind of ghost of Jalen Knox, I would assume, unless there's an injury deal, we don't know about that ships maybe just sailed. I guess he just can't play. I no, really, I have no idea. Me neither. Like I, he was kind of the guy we would poke, not poke fun at, but it was just kind of a funny joke to where it's like, remember there's that one last kid that actually had to sit out. He didn't really get around this portal thing somehow. And you haven't was really dressed. Seen was he even dressed this week? I don't, I don't even know. I have no clue, honestly. I, yeah, I, I haven't heard anything injury-wise, so I can't just, like, assume he's injured. I, I assume he's dressed. I really have no clue, Um, to be completely honest with you. So, like, it really seems like it's coming down to Keith, Watkins, Mingo, whatever you can get from J.J. Henry, and then Trigg. Those seem to be kind of the guys that are going to roll with that receiver this year. And the reason I point that out to kind of bring it back to the dart piece of it is there's another aspect of this is he doesn't have a lot of chemistry with any of these guys. This is all new to him, and that will get built. You know, they'll continue to build on that, um, you know, particularly if he's afforded a full game, uh, you know, going forward and being the guy that I think will improve as well. And, you know, those first couple of drives, I thought he managed the game pretty well. I thought he made some decent reads, some decent decisions, and then – I don't know. Again, they were running the ball so damn well. I was just like, I would like to see them air it out just because. Like, I, I just – Sure. It, it's just – I mean, what they got to halftime, I think he'd attempted, like, what, seven or eight passes? I mean, how they ran 81 plays and ran the ball, like, 64 times. Like, it was <laughs> – it was total domination. But, again, I guess to kind of put, a like, a bow on the point, I do think he has been more impressive to me than he has um, underwhelming at this point. And I think there's probably a game coming in the next two games where he shows that. I don't know why. I just call it a hunch. No, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, it's kind of a coach's dream to be able to just run the football down another team's throat on the road. I think that's what you've seen from Ole Miss is, you know, they have two things that you can bring anywhere, and that's the ability to run the ball and the ability to play good defense. And, you know, you want them to see them air it out, but honestly, at this point, they have not had to. And I, I know you would kind of want to see it and see what it looks like, kind of up-tempo, two-minute, you know, throwing the ball around, you know, the, the field, but they just don't have to at this point. 
and you know they may not have to next week and then that'll be kind of a weird dynamic to see you know what it's all about when Kentucky comes into town because that team's for real um that that is there's no doubt about that so I mean I it's hard to be disappointed with really anything about this season so far but uh oh my gosh Arizona's about to return a fumble for a touchdown to win <laughs> to win that game in overtime wow. <laughs> oh my god Sorry, we're, we're going all over the place here. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, they, they've been really, really impressive in every single phase so far. So it's hard to get too nit- nitpicky about certain things. But, you know, that's kind of what we do. So it is what it is. Yeah, and look, the, the, the thing – I think Kentucky of years past is a good example when you're talking about this team is the main thing you want to see or know is that that, that vertical passing game is there if you need it to where a lot of these Kentucky teams in the last couple of years that have been good football teams overall, haven't had that. And that's been their limitation. They can run over you. They can be really, really tough, but they just simply could not throw the ball vertically down the field. I remember thinking, I, I'm thinking of uh, what was that kid? Terry, uh, Terry, whatever his name was, the little smaller kid that was the quarterback. Then they did the Lynn Bowden thing for a while where he was just kind of taking it under center. I know some of that was out of necessity. Yeah. But point being, those Kentucky teams were well-built football teams with a good defense, a good running game, which I think Ole Miss has. But they just didn't have that element, whereas I think Ole Miss has it when they need it. I think that's probably the important part because there's no doubt that this team's identity now is they are going to run the football over and around you until they can't anymore and it's kind of when they can't anymore what can you do what capabilities do you have and I think they're more than competent at quarterback to be able to stretch the field when they need to which I think is a comforting thing I think with the little we've seen don't you think we've seen enough to kind of make that declaration I mean he's thrown enough deep balls that have hit to where you're like okay he can actually do this this is not you know, Ethan Flat 04, where it's like, please God, let this ball go 25 yards. No, I mean, he has enough talent to, to, to continue to help you win football games if you need to have that be the case. Uh, I think they want to have these games go in the way where he doesn't have to do that. And that's obviously, you know, wishful thinking. It's going to have to happen soon enough. Um, but yeah, I think we've seen enough to where you, you feel like you're really comfortable with, you know, everything you've seen from Dart, you know, it may not be perfect, but it's definitely SEC quality quarterback play at this point. Do you make anything of the aspect of him kind of being, you know, we talked about this on the post game show last night a little bit. It's unfair to say he's Matt Corral like, but the way they approach the game and their, their characteristics and how they play the game, like how they're they're and how they behave, like just being that kind of boisterous leader, it does seem kind of similar. Like, I kind of, this may be not the greatest way to describe it, but I described it last night. It's like, they're both kind of dudes, dudes in the way they lead. They love, you know, lowering their shoulder into somebody. They love kind of getting in people's face a little bit, talking about their own teammates, firing them up, that type of stuff to where it's like, you know, I wouldn't describe Shea Patterson as a dude's dude out there. Uh, I'd say that'd be hardly the case. So like, they seem to have the similar leadership personality (laughs) that I think people gravitate to. (laughs) And that was everything. Look, whatever you may think of, like, what you've heard about Dart, and I know I've, I've mainly talked to his dad for that story, but I did talk to other people. That's kind of this, the thing on him. He didn't have this two-year-long recruitment where you become a brand and you all the other, for the lack of a better phrase, bullshit that comes with being a modern-day high-profile recruit now. You know, he was so far behind the eight ball in the middle of a pandemic, he just kind of went out there and played because he loved football, and that's just kind of what he did, and the rest will work itself out, and that's kind of the theme with him. And I feel like, in a way, that's always what he's reverted back to. And so I think that kind of genuine leadership aspect is not a shtick, let's say Baker Mayfield type of thing. It's very genuine, and I think dudes gravitate to it. 
Yeah, he, he and Matt are similar in that they're very uh, – they're loud on the field, not necessarily yeah, that's know, a good in the way locker room. Like, they're, they're not the guys like you've got, you know, like the Saints, for instance. Drew Brees used to be the huddle guy and everything. And now, you know, Jameis, that's not him. You know, DeMario's the huddle guy, whereas Jackson and, and Corral were kind of lead by example guys. They play their ass off on the field, and everyone sees that and kind of gravitates to them for that reason. Um, so, yeah, I think they do have some similarities. I think they have some play style similarities. Uh, I mean, Corral has an absolute bazooka for an arm. And I think Dart uh, has, you know, really good arm strength. I don't think at that level, but by any means, uh, they have different releases and all that kind of, you know, nerdy whatever stuff. But, yeah, no, they, they have similarities that you can see and you can feel. And it's so early for Dart that it's still – we kind of still forget it. You know, it needs to be brought up quite often that not every guy yeah not every guy's Bryce Young where they just step on you know as a redshirt freshman or true freshman Jameis Winston where they just come out and they're just a stud immediately it's very much more the other scenario where it takes some some you know some pill some uh you know I can't even think about what I'm trying to say right now it takes some time basically yeah yeah, and take a little chill pill here and there on some of these guys. Um, and Dart is definitely one of those. Let it kind of matriculate, let it happen, let it mature a little bit. But so far, it's hard to be disappointed. And that's kind of like in, in the fan discourse of all of this, I feel like part of what what's made it, I don't want to say tribal or heated, but like so it's so heavily scrutinized that you're scrutinizing such a tiny sample size that every mistake he makes is is, you know, kind of under a larger microscope. Whereas by the time – well, we really have been in 2020 because Corral was the only option they had to play quarterback. So for the last two years, if Corral made a mistake, it was like, oh, whatever, he's a good player, let it keep rolling. Now it's a lot more scrutinized. And I feel – I won't say that's yeah. like skewed the perception of it because in the eyes of people that matter, I understand that like it's – you know, it sees it for what it is. But just the kind of discourse overall, I feel like is a little more negative and critical in some ways than maybe it actually is just because everything is so scrutinized trying to find yeah and that's the one downside of not naming the starter not that Kiffin gives remotely a damn about what people are saying online and on message boards but you know from the discourse aspect of it that is kind of the one downside no yeah well Kiffin scrutinizes it as well it's because I think he just hates interceptions so much I mean I've said it before but I mean Arkansas 2020 was like literally Kiffin's Pearl Harbor. I mean, that was like, <laughs> I mean, he's still, I, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, that was like, that was his terrorist attack. I mean, it was, he still has to be bringing it up in staff meetings. I know for a fact, he brought it up for the entire year. I mean, we were playing, going to play Mississippi state. He's still talking about Arkansas 2020 because he hated that game so much. And like, that was his nightmare. And that was everything that he doesn't want. And I think it's almost kind of skewed what he expects out of a quarterback to an instance. Cause like, that's such a, you know, extreme example of what could go wrong. But I feel like he fears that there's some 2020 Matt Corral and Jackson dart. And he knows that this team is talented enough from a roster standpoint to where if we can avoid that. This could be a really good football team. So that's why I feel like, you know, the fans may be scrutinizing everything, but I think Kiffin is as well. You know, it's from a, a area and a stance of, you know, trying to, you know, reel them in a little bit. It's not from a, you know, a negative point of view necessarily. It's from a, this is what we have to do to be successful. This is what you can do to help us do that. And it's just not throw the ball to the other team. It's as simple as that. And that's like the, the ceiling of this team is to 
determined by that. And he knows it, which is why he's so why I think fans know it too. It's like, if he can do this, we can be, you know, this good. And if he doesn't throw interceptions, we can go this far. Yeah, I think there's a correlation between the fans and Kiffin um, at this point of understanding that's where this team is. And that's why it's still to this day is so confusing on why he's not named the starter. Cause you feel like if you give him that kind of confidence, maybe you know, he'll understand what he needs to not do. Yeah. I don't understand. I don't know if we'll call this just like a Kiffin quirk, but he has these things that he just kind of gets on and doesn't relent. And I think this is this not naming a starter is one of them. And everything you just said is true. And it's also so evident in this tone of his voice when he talks about the dart mistakes, I forget the quote that he had when asked about the dart interception, but he basically kind of gave like, you know, that's what we've talked about, the exact thing that we've tried to get him not to do. And I don't know if there is a side-by-side, anyone could pull this up, if there's a recording of Kiffin after Juice has like taken a dump on the carpet in his desk or something. But the tone of their voices when he's talking about that, or maybe like his kid screwing up and Jackson Dart making a terrible decision that ends in a pick have to be so similar. It's almost like he's talking about trying to train a puppy or like trying to reprimand his kid for just a bad habit that the kids done over and over again. He is so like over it and exasperated every time he gets asked about it. Or it's like, I have told him that is exactly what we don't need to do. And he did it anyway, type of thing. And it's kind of humorous in a way, but you can tell, well, everything you're talking about is true from that standpoint. And I just, I find that kind of funny, but again, you know, you're dealing with 19 year old quarterbacks. Um, <laughs> To kind of take it elsewhere, because there was a lot of other stuff in this game that I thought was good for Ole Miss. Um, You know, quarterback was heavily scrutinized. The defense is real, man. I I know Georgia Tech is not good offensively, but just the way they came out and kind of take care of business and the way they really punish you for, I hate to use the cliche, but like every yard seems to be hard. Like if they give up a nine-yard gain that's on a short pass play, more often than not, they've stuck someone when they did get there and they populate the football well. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this team, and I'll I'll kind of be fully bought in in terms of this defense and thinking, oh, yeah, these guys are good again when I see it against Kentucky. Like, I would kind of like to see that first. But they are using different looks, and I don't know what to necessarily make of that. I'm far from, like, a you know film guy knowing what I'm talking about, but I did write down a couple of notes. One of the said Johnson sacks, they lined him up. They put three down linemen and lined Cedric Johnson up just kind of just between the – I guess that would be the right end from his vantage point and the defensive tackle almost in like a pseudo linebacker thing and ran him out there. So it was Tavius, Katie Hill, and then Ivy, and then Cedric Johnson in like kind of a linebackerish role. They had a couple of sets where they went keys, um, Troy Brown and um, Coleman across the board. Yeah. And so last year it kind of was what it was. They didn't have as much depth. The strength of the team was in the secondary and at least it didn't seem like they gave you too many looks. They were just good at what they did. Whereas this game, them not being so vanilla defensively, it looks like they can be a little more multiple and give some teams some different looks. I think when asked about part of that, Kiffin mentioned something about, yeah, you know, you got the three defensive linemen and then Ivy plays a lot. That's a lot to handle. And I feel like that speaks to that to some degree. It looks like they might be a little more multiple this year. Yeah, I think they definitely are. And I feel like this is the first game where they felt like they actually needed to have a real defensive game plan, you know, for certain sets they saw on offense and, you know, some things that they needed to kind of get ironed out and prepare for. Uh, but they're they're just really athletic. And I think that's the thing we haven't seen from an Ole Miss defense in a while. It's just athleticism at all three levels. The defensive linemen are athletic. The linebackers, you know, I, I think it'll be 
interesting to see them tested against uh, better you know, speed from SEC teams. But so far, they've really been impressive for what we thought was going to be um, before the season. And then DB-wise, I mean, they play so many guys, which is so important because, you know, all these offenses are so fast these days. To be able to rotate in, I mean, damn near 10 DBs that you're comfortable playing is is a huge asset. And they tackle incredibly well. I think that's been the most impressive thing to me so far is just, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, a whole lot of not back tacklers on this team, but they gang tackle, they team tackle, they tackle an open field. Uh, it's just been, they've been really impressive. It's hard to really say anything other than that at this point. The DBs have been great. I think DeAndre Prince uh, and Battle have been awesome safeties. You kind of see him here and there making plays. Finley, he's just so consistent these days that you don't even notice him as much as other guys. But, yeah, I, I, I've really been impressed with J.J. Geese. I think the difference between this pass rush this year compared to last year is, you know, last year obviously you had Sam Williams and Cedric on the outside, but you had – Little to no interior rush. J.J. just bulldozes these guys. I mean, he truly he, – he forces pressure up the middle, which makes it a lot easier on the guys on the outside to get to him. You know, he and Ivy and I've, even Gordon has played pretty well so far from what I've seen as well. So, I they're just – they're deeper than usual. They're more athletic than usual. And I, I think they are a good defense. I think that – and which is – that's a lot to say these days for all yeah. this. It's been a long time since we've had a good defense. I think Kentucky and Auburn and LSU, when we see them play those guys, I think that will determine whether they're like a really good defense. Um, and I think Tulsa, I mean, we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, I think that's going to be a real test. You see some more from some of the DBs there. But yeah, I mean, like I said, it's really hard to be disappointed from what you've seen so far with these guys. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. 
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, we'll get back to Weldon Rodenberg in just a second, but first I want to take a quick break to remind you the podcast is brought to you by our friends at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a full proven online therapy service that can connect you with a licensed therapist in under 48 hours. Therapy is just like anything else. We perform routine maintenance on our cars. We change the tires. We get oil change. We put gas in it. And if we didn't, it wouldn't work for very long. Our brains are uh, the same way. Therapy is a great way to improve your mental health and how your brain functions affects the way you live. Need to give it a try. If you're feeling anxious, need to get something off your chest. Sometimes it's just nice to have someone to talk to. Um, you don't even have to go on camera if you don't want to. You can go audio only. It's really laid back. They'll get you set up. Therapy is a great way to feel better and live better. Check them out. Betterhelp.com. Use that promo code MPW and you get 10% off. The podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Rights subscriber, that's rippyrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me a couple of times a week plus discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. Just go show him proof of subscription. He'll get you set up. Then go find your own favorites. Oxford's so lucky to have a great butcher shop like LB's. If he doesn't have it, he'll get it for you. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. I imagine he'll have it because he has all kinds of delicious cuts, seafood, sausages. Love the tri-tips, the filet burgers. There's all kinds of delicious stuff there. Greg loves the grill loves uh, loves the meats, and you can tell from the uh, product and the selection he has on display. Go check him out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. And they continue to hit on the portal. I know we talked about this before, but that's just another impressive aspect of it. Like, Coleman's a real like contributor on this defense. Ladarius Tennyson plays a lot. J.J. Pekis. I know they brought these guys into play. It's not surprising that they're out on the field. That's not really what makes it good, but it just seems like those guys are playing well, and to continue to hit on the portal at that rate, and I have something I kind of want to get to in just a second when we kind of bounce around beyond uh, the old Miss piece of it, but that's a game changer. And credit to Kiffin for being on, I say, the cutting edge, but just taking full advantage of that. I think, you know, in this time of change in college football, and I think this is evident, you know, like the greatest evidence of this, I think, is the old Miss defense. You can use the offense in some ways, too, uh, obviously with Dart and some of the weapons. But, you know, in a time of really, like, drastic change in college football – it's really, really fortunate that Ole Miss doesn't have a coach that's kind of antiquated in his thinking. And I don't necessarily, I don't mean that as like a Matt Luke thing or anyone else, just who they hired from there. They could have hired someone that's like, eh, you know, we do what we do. We're going to recruit high school. We'll take the occasional kid. It, this, this game's changing between that and NIL. And it's a really important time in Ole Miss's program history to have a guy that's always forward thinking and trying to, you know, be willing to adapt. And I think that's evident with the portal aspect of things because Look at this! Look at the production of the field. I say just defense. No, it's, it. it's, it's all undeniable. All it's undeniable. It's it's right. unbelievable, and it, it's super important. And I think that's come out on the defensive side again. And good on them for it. And that's to me is probably what I, makes me believe the most that this team's ceiling is a little bit different because running the football the way they do and playing the defense the way they do that'll travel anywhere. You know, if you can avoid right. ridiculous turnovers, you can go play in any environment against anyone and have a chance. I'm not predicting them to win all you know, nine games they have left, but I think they'll have a chance in every single one of them because of that fact. I agree. I think he mentioned it during 
a press conference. I can't remember if it was in the spring or fall or media days when talking about the kind of players they look at from the portal. Uh, and he talked about how he, especially on defense, was looking at players who have played, who have played significant snaps at other places so that there's a significant amount of film on them to understand really who they are as football players. Because, I mean, the portal is, is filled with so many guys. I mean, they might be highly rated players, but, you know, they're true freshmen and they just were disappointed in their spot and they wanted to leave. Ole Miss is not going after those kinds of guys. They're going after kinds of guys who have played real snaps at real places where they have an idea of when they come into the system, yeah, they're going to have to adjust to being at Ole Miss, whether they're from a lower level or, or any other level. Uh, but also, uh, you know, not have to adjust so much to the scheme. And you see it on offense. I mean, the I mean, Dart, yeah, like he hasn't played a whole lot, but I think you have to give Kiffin the benefit of the doubt on quarterback play to kind of figure that aspect out. But he and Trigg were the biggest question marks, you know, transfer portal-wise out of anybody on the entire team. I mean, Ivy's played real snaps at Georgia Tech, and he's had familiarity with Partridge from being a Georgia guy where Partridge recruits quite heavily. Ashim Young has played, played a lot of snaps at Iowa State knows Partridge. They knew who he was as a person and a football player. Uh, who else do we have out there? I mean, Tennyson played three years at Auburn. You know, they knew exactly what they're getting from him, and they have not, like, had to figure out anything about him. He's a slot corner who's physical. Don't really want him in coverage. Let's plug and play him like he's an asset. I mean, Troy Brown has familiar, once again, with Partridge. He's played a ton of snaps at Central Michigan. You know exactly what you're getting. I mean, Corey Coleman – I mean, I guess kind of similar to Trigg, was a semi-question mark, but once again, played a ton of snaps at TCU. Maybe he was in a different position, and that's been kind of the one wild card they've had on transfer portal-wise, and it's turned out that, guess what, they hit on it again. So it's been really impressive. The numbers are undeniable with how these portal guys have done with this team. And, you know, it's a kind of a double-edged sword because a lot of these guys will be gone in a year. But at the same time, you know, this is a year-by-year league. And when you have this kind of free agency, you know, you have to put up some pennies to, to get some of these guys in. But it's been working so far. It's hard to really question their their what they've been doing. How does Quinn John Judkins get out of Alabama without Alabama or Auburn needing him? It's, it's, it's really tough. Um, so I remember it was during COVID and we're starting to finally do – I guess he's a 2022 recruit, right? Yep. He's a true freshman. So it's COVID spring of 2021, I guess. So we're looking at 2022, guys. We're, we're putting up the first watch list. And on the first running back watch list, uh, I put Judkins. Clay and I were, were putting together the list, Clay Karcher, and I put Judkins on it. And he was a three-star from Alabama. And to be quite honest, of the – 10 running backs that were on the list, he was like top five in my eyes. And this is in the country, in our recruitable areas. It, it, I just don't totally understand it. Um, I, I can see it a little bit from the past, looking at kind of like his junior filming. That's your big recruiting year. He's not, he was not the biggest kid in the world. And, I mean, he's definitely bulked up, but he's still not, you know, a super physically imposing. I mean, he's shredded and he's athletic and he's awesome but you know from his high school film there was some growing there and he wasn't a barn burner by any means but what he had and what's so important and it's what I've looked at so much you know what I used to look at so much was 
incredible change of direction, incredible vision, and incredibly tough to bring down. Like that's just a winning formula for running backs. Zach Evans has it. Zach Evans has it. Judkins has it. Snoop Connor was a guy, not the best change of directions, but he had really good vision and he was incredibly difficult to bring down. Um, I mean, Henry Parrish, though he didn't really play well last year, has really good vision, has really good change of direction, probably a little bit easier to bring down. So just having some sort of combination of those things usually leads to really successful running backs. And then, of course, he's got a great mindset. Um, I don't really even remember who Ole Miss was recruiting. I mean, Auburn came in late a little bit, I remember, and that was kind of a weird deal. Alabama kind of recruits at just such a different level. I mean, if you're really being honest, Jameer Gibbs is kind of like a, you know, a Pokemon evolution version of, of Quisham Juggins. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think they're really hurting at that position. Uh, Auburn looks really stupid on them. I mean, for a team like Mississippi State, I don't even know what they recruited him. looks pretty stupid on them. Uh, but that's it's a hindsight thing. You know, it, it's always so tough. But, yeah. He was on the first list I made, and Levy and all of them watched him, loved him immediately. Kevin Smith loved him immediately. Uh, Alabama, we've always done a really good job of recruiting that, you know, quote-unquote second-tier player and develop, developing him. Um, Cedric Johnson, of course, being one of those guys. So, yeah, it, it's it looks pretty unexplainable at this point, but there are, you know, at least a few reasons. I can understand at least why, why Alabama did yeah, I mean, you look at the, his recruiting timeline. I was going through this earlier today. Like, he takes an official to Notre Dame. Uh, you know, they re, Tennessee seemed like they offered him and they kind of reaffirmed the offer, kind of the similar thing with Kentucky. Tennessee, but yeah, Tennessee offers everybody. That means right. literally nothing. Yeah. But, like, it's, it's, but my point being, like, going through that, it's like some Tennessee, some Kentucky. He's a sharp kid, so Yale's got two entries on here. Um, no, not bad. UCF, Vandy, Miami. Point being, there's not a whole lot of Alabama. No. There's not a ton of Auburn on there, even though, to your point, they came in late. There's not even a Florida State, not a ton of Mississippi State on there. Like, the schools are not what you would expect with a kid that's doing this at 18 years old. Um, you know, also, another thing that it seems like Kiffin's staff has done a really good job of on both sides of the football, and you pointed this out a couple of times, he's also seems like a really good kid. Um, you know, he's the son of an yeah, attorney. It's important. Dad owns a construction company. He used to skateboard as a kid. Not that skateboarding makes you a good kid, but just like really interesting, uh, like interesting in that had different interests, makes good grades. Um, you know, I may have told that. I can't remember if I've ever told this story on the podcast or the post game show, but I did that NIL interview with all those guys this summer to kind of get their player pages updated. Yeah. Uh, he asked me to send it to him so he could make his own edits. And then he sent it back. It was like, just wanted to make sure everything sounded and read. Okay. I, I, I would say that's a first for that type of thing. No, and that sounds like silly, like acting like that's a big deal. But like, man, these like players, it is to have I mean, the presence it, of mind team to do that. Yeah, no, it really. I mean, they go through so much. They have so much going around. And just to you know, something as simple as that. Like, usually, it is just a like nightmare trying to get anything from some of these players. Whether even if it's like the freaking NFL teams trying to get them to sign a form, it's like they just won't do it. But if you got a kid like that, that will, you know, that, that's impressive and. I guess one last comment on his recruitment, and it's just kind of a, the state of recruiting these days. Not a big camp kid. Okay. I don't remember him going to a lot of camps, especially like sophomore and junior year. And that shit is like so important to some of these gurus these days to see these guys go, you know, work out in shorts and shirts and, you know, give interviews and crap. So he, I don't think he was a big camp guy, which usually affects your ranking at least a little bit. Yeah. I've talked about this with the, couple people actually say the camp scene is almost like 
weighted to a fault, right? It's almost too heavily weighted on camps with the way this process is run these days. I wouldn't say like, there, there, too yeah, there's some a lot. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I there's some say, good like, things from problem, camps. but yeah, just it, it seems very heavily weighted on camps where it's like, you know, high school film and stuff like that gets put on the back burner almost sometimes, it feels like. Right. There's positives from camps. You get, at least with the correct camps, I think usually uh, the Under Armour and Rivals are pretty good about this. You get a verified, at least a camp verified height and weight. And you get a speed as well. Usually it's nonsense, but at least it gives you a range of what it is. Uh, sometimes if the camp guys are really good, you can get a vertical, you can get an arm length. Uh, and those, that stuff is important to have an idea of what you're watching on films. Okay, this guy went to a camp, you know, a month ago. We've got at least a two-date verified height, weight, speed on him. Um, and, yeah, like quarterbacks, it's good to see a kid. You know, it's tough to see their footwork and their build and their release, you know, on film sometimes. So to see him at camp up and close and see it, there's good things. The, the bad things are – all of these camp guys out there that make are making the adjust, the assumptions and the decisions on who, who actually looks good and who actually looks bad and who's winning based off of a, a short you know O line D line rep on who's good and who's bad. It, it's it's a little silly for that, but there are positives that come out of that. I don't want to shit on camps too much, but I think the negatives are a lot of media and ranking standpoint it's like no one really cares if you went to 12 camps that doesn't make you a good football player uh if anything it, it like really makes you question like why are you going to so many last thing before we bounce around the sec you know we talked about this a little bit at the top in terms of the ceiling of this team and look at georgia tech they're not a good football team i'm with you there but are you kind of at the point where you wonder what this team's ceiling is? Like in terms of them taking a step back and maybe not being competitive as a top two-ish team in the West, I think I maybe have changed my opinion on that. Um, I, I, I won't completely rule out the possibility that things go sideways, but I just like, I don't know, the, the defense reaffirming and some of the stuff we've seen at quarterback, are you ready to kind of, I don't know, declare them in the mix for whatever, you know, first, second in the West. I know first maybe is a stretch, but that type of thing. Like, are you ready to consider them a contender in what seems to be a more wide open West? I am ready to consider them a contender to win nine or 10 games compared to the pessimistic view of like six or seven. That, that's that's about as far as I'm willing to go. That, that's about as far as I'm willing to go at this point, because this is such a, a week to week sport. I really feel like it's more than it's ever been. Um, just getting these kids to kind of rally and get ready for every week to play like they need to. I mean, you saw Arkansas this week. I mean, they are 10 times better than Missouri State. Like, that, that's no question about it. But guess who they play next week? A&M. I mean, it was like the most look-ahead of look-ahead games. And you know those coaches are just preaching that all week. And they still couldn't get up for it, you know. So, I mean, there's no doubt that I think this team is better than we all thought they were from a defensive standpoint, even to my, in my opinion, from an offensive standpoint, but it's tough. I mean, week to week, I mean, I'm a little nervous about this Tulsa game, to be honest, because you know for a fact they are focused on Kentucky as well. I mean, and Tulsa's a good football team. I mean, they're a 21-point favorite. If I was a betting man, which I am, like 21 points for Tulsa sounds pretty intriguing to me because you know they're not totally focused. They need to be. Um, so, yeah, I – to wrap it all up on this Ole Miss deal, I, I'm confident that they are better than I thought they were, and I'm more confident in saying they might win nine or ten compared to six or seven. 
that's probably the best way to frame it. And it's a good transition into bouncing around the league. I have a theory I want to throw at you. You've seen what are we seeing like a lot through three weeks? It's Georgia Southern beating Nebraska. That's not the great example. App State going into beating Texas A&M. Marshall beating Notre Dame. Um, Tulane beat what was supposed to be a pretty good Kansas State team this weekend. You South Florida yeah. scared the hell out of Florida. Missouri State scared the hell out of Arkansas. The list goes on and on. I mean, you can list six, seven different examples. Is there any way that this transfer portal thing has actually brought some semblance of parity in college football, just not in the sense that maybe we thought it might, to whereas these lower-level programs – because I was just looking at it the other night, I'm like, damn – South Florida, this program's a dumpster fire. But then I look, it's like, oh, Gary Bohannon's at quarterback. He's not a burner. Like, he wasn't a, a huge asset for um, Baylor, but he was the quarterback on a team that, you know, won the Big 12. Um, and, like, they, yeah. like, he was fine. Like, you know what I mean? He got his job back for the Sugar Bowl after Shapin won the Big 12 championship game. Uh, I'm trying to think of another example. Chase Bryce, I think he was actually pre-portal, but, you know, Clemson kid. goes. Technically, yeah. Like, you just look at these, you're like, damn, how is this happening on a week-to-week basis? Then you look across the field, and it's like, actually, I remember this kid at another program. I just wonder if that's yeah. possible at all. Because we're seeing more and more close games between the basically college football version of a buy, a buy game, right? Non-Power 5 versus Power 5. They're kind of getting scared more often than it seems like. Maybe it's a one-off, but I just throw that one out there. No, I think it's a valid point. I think it might be a situation of there's a lot more, you know, room for possibility for like a dead cat bounce, like for some of these programs that have struggled or are not as good as they usually are to influx some portals and have some games like a South Florida, Florida, um, a a Georgia Southern. I mean, they just, I mean, there's a first year coach and they beat Nebraska. Um, I also think that it kind of goes both ways where, where some of these programs you know, game players, maybe it's in the G5, that means that some Power 5 teams are losing serious depth. And I think we've seen college football be so top-heavy recently that if you're not Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, I mean, I'll even give Michigan the minutes in the doubt, though they've played nobody. If you're, like, from Team 8, 7, 8 to whenever you are, you're not that good. Truly. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, you're just you're you're a good, but you're not that good. And if you don't come to play for one of these days, like you're fully capable of being beaten by a team, you know, like App State, who's had guys that are fifth year seniors, whereas you, you know, you're up and down every single year, you know, A&M, you know, being the case. I mean, that's a, a lot of young players on that team versus a team that's a lot of old guys. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's I, I'm not willing to say that there's like this crazy parody, but I think that the portal has given teams the ability to stay afloat and kind of build longer than they usually would be able to. Um, but it's also taken from some of these other teams that used to be like you know, really good or really competitive year in year out because the guys have left for whatever reasons, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. And, and then the like the flip side of that, too, it allows these, you know, I say weaker programs, power five programs that aren't considered as good to flip it around. I mean, Ole Miss is an example of that. But look what Lance Leipold's doing at Kansas. I mean, this is kind of right. a remarkable story at this point. And even just like a hypo at Tennessee, I know talent wasn't necessarily the issue, just mass dysfunction, but they've benefited. No, but that roster was stuff. shit. I mean, that roster was terrible. And he, he's done a really impressive job, whether it's recruiting or portal, like you're about to say. I mean, fixing that, and that's not easy. It's not. No, and so, like, that's what, you know, everyone longs for a better product and more, quote, unquote, parity. Look, you're always – I think you're going to have the Georges of the world and all of that. But, you know, from 
eight to 17, like you just mentioned, or really even like five to 17, you might yeah, get more seriously. variance than you have in years past. And I think that makes more entertaining. I mean, I was entertained trying to see if South Florida could pull it off. Missouri State was up 10. Granted, you know, yeah. in real time later, they were up 10 with like nine minutes to go or seven minutes to go. And granted, again, real time, you know, a minute and nine seconds of game time later, they were down. Yeah. They're down for somehow. No, there were there was a there was a ton of examples. I mean, South Alabama, you know, if the could have been. I, mean, I love I love Kane Walmack, but like if they didn't have that ridiculous fake field goal, like they they probably win that football game. That's another example. UCLA is a team that they you know they've had a lot of players been taking from the portal, you know, in and out. South Alabama is probably one that's feeding them all in to be able to have that kind of game where you can take someone out, you know, out of nowhere. So in that sense of parity, I, I think you're right. I don't know. It's really an overall sense of parity right. necessarily. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you saw a lot of really weird uh, results this weekend. And, I mean, I think my point I mentioned earlier, that I think it's becoming really, really difficult to get these college kids up for every single game, um, which is why I feel like some coaches, they might not even want to say it out loud because it hurts their ability to do their job. But playing 10 SEC games – the COVID year was actually like a delight for some of these coaches because there was no excuse. You were up for every single game. There's no down, up, down, up uh, kind of attitude amongst the players or the staff. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's hard these days. And I think, um, I, you know, this is a conversation for another day. I think we're headed more towards something like that in the very near future. I think a lot of these buy games will get eliminated as, you know, these TV revenues increase, the conferences get bigger. I just think there's going to be more and more conference games and less of these, you know, three to four cupcakes here. I just think that's kind of where this sport is headed eventually. But it has been interesting for the first three weeks. As we kind of bounce around the league here, the other theory I had, and this leads me to the A&M Miami game, and I guess a little bit of state LSU. I don't necessarily have this for uh, – I don't necessarily attribute this to the NFL, but it pertains to college. If you have a quarterback in college that's a complete statue that has no threat to run at all, aren't you at a huge significant disadvantage at this point? Try, watching that Van Dyke kid from Miami try to scramble when it was clearly open for two and a half hours last night was – I didn't even care about the game, but it was frustrating to watch. It's like – my God, and then you look at real real Will Rogers at State, that game changed because of his inability to scramble in a lot of ways. It just seems like if you don't have a guy that can at least do it, it doesn't have to be a runner per se, but the pocket passer statue guy in college football seems to put you at kind of a disadvantage. No, 100%. I mean, we're going through and evaluating quarterbacks in high school. You know, the, the one of the, the dead traits you just cannot have, you cannot be a statue. I don't care if you have Peyton Manning's arm. I don't care if you are Peyton Manning almost these days because yeah, no if kidding. you cannot at least move a little bit, you just take away so many advantages for an offense. I mean, Jaden Daniels for LSU, you know, credit to him. I mean, he cannot throw the football very well, and that is just a fact. But the reason he's the starting quarterback for LSU, because unlike Nussmeyer, you know, Jaden Daniels is a hell of an athlete, and he can make real plays with his feet and can extend drives, extend plays, really do a ton. Whereas Rodgers, I mean, if he had the ability to run just a half, like just a little bit, the, that offense would be so much more dynamic because of just the, the pressure it puts on the defense. But he can't. And then Van Dyke, I mean, Max Johnson, he doesn't look like it, but that kid's a really good athlete. If he has to make a play with his legs, he absolutely can which is why I always thought the Haynes King, you know, idea that he was just this super dynamic athlete that had to play was so silly. 
Um, but yeah, no, you're hundred percent right. It just, I mean, that day is dead unless you're Tom Brady, you know, or Drew Brees or one of those guys that just so elite. And obviously those are NFL players. So in college, it's like not even the same conversation. I mean, you, you just can't play the position at the same level as you used to be able to. Credit to AM for driving that game out and winning it. You know, Miami's a good team. They were missing their top receiver. I didn't think Miami played particularly well. But the D- AM defense is athletic and they're good and it'll travel. Yes. But doesn't this scream eight and four? I mean, with their schedule, seven and five, eight and four. I mean, look, they went to Max Johnson. I guess it can get better, but this is kind of the outdated yeah. philosophy we talked about with Jimbo Fisher. I just don't see them being any sort of contender in the SEC West with that kind of offense. I just I don't get it. It's 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 terrible. Their defense is going to keep them in most games. They're real, but I don't know how you win more than eight games doing that. Yeah, I mean, they're gonna struggle on the offensive side of the ball the entire year. I don't think anything's going to change. I don't think Jimbo is going to, you know, change anything with him. That's a problem. Uh, the Miami game, yeah, I would say it's a pretty big problem. I mean, I don't know exactly what the solution in season would be. Uh, I mean, but, like, for the Miami game, I mean, just personally, I think Mario Cristobal is the most overrated coach in the country from any sort of game day standpoint. I mean, he is an automatic fade in a game of any like sort of circumstances that are important for me. I mean, I, I was amazed that they, he got under a touchdown on the road against AM. I mean, he is so, he's a, just a really bad game day coach. So that was, that was a nice pretty penny to make on that one, but back to AM. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, just to be able to, you know, compete with Alabama, which is the team you have to compete with to win the West. I just don't see it. I mean, they can't score with them and I don't necessarily believe they'll be able to, stop them the entire game and that's the game they're gonna be looking at um are they gonna go eight and four maybe I, I don't know i mean florida looks very human again after their you know weird result week one against a really good utah team um but I, it's a weird deal i don't know what they're gonna change they're still super athletic but jimbo has like completely lost either his touch or just his idea of what offense should be in college football these days. Yeah. And like, if he doesn't, uh, you know, if he, does, if he doesn't uh, adapt, like, I don't know what you do. I, know, I mean, look, I don't want to do the Jimbo conversation over and over again and ask what Ross Bjork's going to do, but I just, I was very underwhelmed, even though they were, you know, able to kind of be tough and rebound and win that game after a very, uh, very strange week. Um, Mississippi State OSU. I thought that Mississippi honestly went into that game thinking, you know, if Mississippi State, I have a hunch that they might be pretty good. And if they are, like, I think this is going to prove it tonight. And through about two and a half quarters, I thought that was the case. And then, you know, as it kind of happens with this Mike Leach thing, the second half, like, it seemed like LSU made some adjustments. They didn't do anything offensively. And then, you know, they gifted LSU seven on the muff punt. That's all it takes to get that place going. And boom, you've lost a game where it's like, how did State lose that game? That's right. Mike Leach in a nutshell, coupled with the lack of mobility at quarterback that I mentioned, too. No, I mean, I watched this entire game. We were, we were in an LSU bar in Houston, and I'm I'm not sure the best team won that game oh, yesterday. 100%. That I was mean, my take. LSU's not good, and I'm not sure State is – like I'm, I'm still confident State is good on the right day, but it just – that's a Mike Leach thing. I'm with you. No, that's right. That's what you get. I mean, you get a game by game, and in that game, you get it half by half. Uh, I mean, I think LSU and Matt House completely outcoached Kit Leach in the second half of that game. Um, I mean, they actually brought pressure here and there. That, that Mississippi State offensive line, man, that, that's not, it's not a good offensive line. And they're not a good pass-blocking offensive line, which is like the only thing you have to have 
uh, you know, to run that system. I mean, LSU was getting real pressure on Rodgers. Um, I mean, Rodgers played pretty, pretty well in the first half. He kind of did exactly what he needs to do. Second half, I mean, I don't want to say that that team just looked soft. I mean, it was – they got punched in the mouth series after series after series. Receivers are dropping the balls. Running backs were, you know, basically useless. Rodgers is so immobile that, like, he would look – he looked scared, which is, like, the he first time – I mean, credit to him. It's, it's wild to watch. No. He in the Egg Bowl in particular last year. He doesn't. It's weird. And it's like he's not – an unathletic kid by any means, but he just does not run the ball. And then defensively, I think Mississippi State's got a pretty good defense, but they completely lost Jaden Daniels in the second half. I mean, LSU kind of like opened it up, went a little tempo, kind of found a way for him to you know kind of take over. And Mississippi State had absolutely no answer for it. You know, they, they doubled Kayshawn and then Malik Neighbors just killed them on the other side. Uh, they didn't tackle well in the second half. I mean, they just, they looked out physicaled. They looked tired. They looked soft. And, I mean, that's a really bad combination to go play on the road with. So, I mean, credit to LSU. They got – they, you know, won a really important game for them, I think, to kind of keep the ship sailing. So, I had a, there was kind of, you know, some concern about some of these players saying, like, this is a lost season. Let's just, you know, see the, see in the NFL. But, I, no, I mean, they look competent. They're not good. But they're they're competent, which is always a little scary for them. <laughs> yeah, that was about to say that didn't change my opinion on LSU. <clears throat> Good on them for gutting something like that out. But on the, the it's fascinating to me. I, I hate to belabor the Rogers point, but like the Van Dyke kid, he tried to scramble, but poor for Miami. But he's just too damn slow. He couldn't get to the corner. He couldn't go anywhere. He looked like a three year old learning how to walk the first time when he did get four or five yards, and he would just kind of fall over. Rodgers doesn't try. When Rodgers is flushed out of the pocket, he still has the football like this and like his th- – I mean, people can't see me, but like in the kind of the – I'm still going to throw it, and then goes down. Yeah. It was never, oh, he didn't get the edge there and got shoved out of bounds or he just got tripped up. He, it, it, the lack of attempt is the most alarming piece of it to me. It's kind of bizarre to watch. But yeah, the, not, maybe – I don't want to yeah. shit on the kid. <clears throat> his timing's great. He's a good quarterback. I just think that aspect is weird. Yeah, I think for me watching him play, and I, I haven't watched them that much. The most shocking thing for just on him is, like, like you said, timing-wise and this offense-wise, throwing the ball. Like, he doesn't have a, a very good arm at all, but he really understands what they want him to do. But his, his pocket presence is so bad. I mean, when they get pressure on him, whether it's in his face or coming around the edge, like he just does not feel it. He does not see it. He doesn't necessarily have to be some dynamic athlete to run to make first downs, but his inability to just like step up in the pocket, you know, side to side, really find a way out of there. He just gets sacked a lot. And that system, like you're only rushing three a lot of the times, like, and he's still getting taken down, like just in the middle of the pocket, like hasn't even considered rolling out at all. Uh, And that's a problem for them because they obviously don't run the ball, even though I actually really like their two running backs. They just don't give them the ball very much. Their receivers are athletic, but they really struggle to catch the ball. I mean, if you remember the egg ball last year, like that was embarrassing. But th- this other, yeah, I mean, they, they dropped the ball so much. Um, so, I mean, it's tough. I, I still don't think they're a bad football team, but they sure looked like a shit one in the second half um, yesterday. They're scary because when it goes bad, like when you're trying to defend that, it can go real, real bad. But if you figure it out, they're kind of hapless. Nothing else really stuck out around the SEC. I mean, I, I think the Florida – 
and Anthony Richardson thing, maybe is a classic case of weird things happen week one. You know, I always use Kenny Trill as the example from back in like 2012 when he went and tore up South Carolina, gets the nickname, and it's like, actually, yeah, it's actually not very good. Um, not that Richardson is not good, I just don't think he would, was what he is against uh, Utah. Um, you know, I, they did right. pull it out, so good on them for that. But I think they're an average football team. To me, the most exciting teams, I know it's weird to say after what they did this week, but like what are Arkansas and Tennessee? That's the most fascinating piece of, to me because I think Georgia, I know Georgia's awesome. I think I'm pretty sure Kentucky's really, really good. What are Tennessee and Arkansas and what are their ceilings? I think that's kind of what makes this league. Like, and if you want to add another element of wildness to this, whatever they are, I think is fascinating. Yeah, I think the, the best teams in this race for number three is what we, I guess we call it. And it's kind of what everyone in media is calling it when you talk about the SEC. Like, who's the best, you know, the third best team? I think, you know, a lot of people led towards A&M. But in my opinion, the best teams are the ones who know exactly who they are. And I think Ole Miss, Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky, those four teams, you know, there was question marks about Ole Miss, but those four teams know exactly who they are, exactly what they do, exactly what they're going to be moving forward. And that's just a huge plus. Whereas AM, offensively, I feel like they have no idea what they're doing. Mississippi State, they know who they are, but I just simply don't think they're as talented as other teams. And then Florida, I mean, that was kind of a – it looks like kind of a mirage of a week one deal. I don't think they're a bad football team, but they're definitely not competing for second in the East or third in the whole conference. Um, I mean, I think Arkansas could be really good. I think KJ does exactly what they want him to do. Uh, I mean, he is, he's a good college quarterback who can win new games. He's not an NFL guy, but he, he, I mean, Bryles credit to him has shaped an offense to use the best parts of Jefferson. Um, they've got a good offensive line, good running backs. They're a solid team. I think defensively there's real question marks. And I think that's like kind of where I feel like, you know, with Tennessee, with Kentucky, I feel like they're a, a little bit above Tennessee and Arkansas and you know, maybe even Ole Miss at this point. I think that's fair to say because they're solid on both sides. I think Tennessee and Arkansas have real defensive question marks, whether it's from a depth wise or just a sheer talent because they've, succumb to giving up some points to some pretty pretty bad teams so far and you know we were trying to describe like I asked you if you think Ole Miss could get to that second spot in the SEC West and you mentioned like no I think they can win nine or ten games I I think that may be the best way to put it that we just stumbled upon I'm in on them being in the race for number three I'll anoint them to that level where I wasn't necessarily sure with that I'll put them in the conversation as the race to the third best team in the SEC type of thing yeah I think that's very fair at this point now I don't I don't think they're on Alabama's level. I can assure you they're at this level. But I think the race to the third, if you had said, you know, after three games, you feel confident enough to say that, that would be considered success so far. Everyone knows they haven't played anybody with a real pulse yet. So there's still a little pump the brakes there. But it's like we mentioned earlier, it's more about other teams, less about Ole Miss, you know, being so great and other teams being a little bit, I guess, more mortal or more – uh, regular than we had possibly anticipated. Last thing before we get to soccer, does, does Georgia, are they the ones that make this year a snooze fest? I mean, they don't play anybody this year. I, I, mean, I think they're going undefeated. Um, and, I mean, I think Alabama is still really, really, really talented. And, you know, Kirby is fully capable of losing a game on game day by himself by doing something silly. Um, but I've given credit to Todd Monken, who has got taken a lot of flack over there for his, 
you know, kind of pedestrian offense and really conservative and safe, he has like full trust in Stetson Bennett to run this thing for him. And, you know, Bennett has looked really good. He is like the prime quarterback for them. It's like they honestly don't even need a really good one because then it's like, well, how do we, you know, get this guy associated? Like they need the guy like him who could just manage the game perfectly. And that's what he does. He can make play with it, plays with his feet, distribute the ball, smart, knows exactly what to do. Um, I think you're seeing the beginnings of what Alabama looks like at Georgia. Everyone was so concerned with them losing seven or eight guys. And then you actually go through and look at the rest of the roster that's still there with guys yeah. like Kelly Ringo and uh I think it's Jordan Davis, the Florida kid that's still there. That was like an absolute monster last year. Nolan Smith is an absolute monster. He's kind of like a like baby Will Anderson. He's not that good yet, but like he's probably will be a guy like that. I mean, they, they just have been recruiting at an insane level that where you know, they've got guys that are true freshmen that are out there starting for them. And it's not because they're lacking of depth because that's how good these guys are. So, yeah. Are they going to make it a snooze fest? I, that's that might be a stretch. Um, it's a little premature. I, I I think that Kentucky Georgia game like is really exciting. Assuming Kentucky, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want them to beat Ole Miss, but if they do, I mean, they will probably be undefeated going to that game as well, and that would be a really fun one in Lexington. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're really damn good. It is now time for the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. Um, we did have football this week across the pond. Uh, they finally decided it was okay to play after uh, the 96 year old Queens passing. Um, so that's always good. Uh, we did have matches this week. I look at the top of the English premier league standings and it is not man city at the top. I get it. Seven matches. It's one point behind, but Arsenal six O and or six one and O Whereas Manchester City has had two draws, what uh, what kind of went on in the world of uh, across the pond football this week? Anything stand out? Shocking? Yeah, I mean they still had some delays in the in the Premier League. Like we United did not play today, and neither did Liverpool. So they're not totally on track and on schedule like they should be. Uh, but Arsenal did play this morning, and they they whipped up on a pretty good Brentford team three uh, nil. I mean they, they've just been really good. It, it's hard to say anything besides their loss to United. Uh, they've been basically perfect. Um, and they're there, the 6 0 and 1. Um, now, I think they have kind of had a pretty easy schedule to start. They haven't played a lot of the top six teams yet. Uh, so we'll see, like, really what they're made of when they start playing some of the bigger teams. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to deny they, they've been really impressive. Uh, I, I, think that even in Europa League, they've been good. So it's credit to them, but it's, it's a long season. I'm looking through the standings here, and uh, the one thing that sticks out is Saudi Castle. They have seven matches and five draws. Are, are, is that the <laughs> – the Saudis just like, hey, if we tie every match, like we're set? What 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 do we have going on there? That seems like a lot of draws. Yeah, I mean, that's a really kind of a that's a pretty insane number. I remember last year we kind of talked about Brighton was like the draw Kings. It looks like Newcastle has, has taken over that mantle. And that's kind of like an anomaly at this point to have five draws. Um, but they're, they're good. I think they're firmly going to be in this, you know, in this league next year. I don't, I don't see any worries about them moving down. I think the biggest question with them is like, how are they going to continue building this team? Are they going into January after the international break? Are they going to start buying players like they did in the summer? 
Uh, I mean, they're pretty good. I think they've just really struggled to finish some of these games. They've been up early a lot, but haven't actually, uh, you know, finished. Obviously, the biggest thing that I've noticed so far is there's a club called Fulham in sixth place right behind Man United. Again, super early. I get there's a lot of going to be a fluctuation, but, I mean, they have won three matches already, which, you know, the classification I'd put them in, which is other teams that I've halfway heard of that I would assume be at the bottom. They are not at the bottom. What's up? What do we got going on here? This is not the real-life Ted Lasso. That's Leeds. What's up? What's Fulham's deal? Uh, they're, I mean, they're one of the teams that came up. I mean, they're from London. They, they've got a pretty hist- a pretty good history of kind of being up in the league and down and up and down. Uh, what they definitely have is one of the best strikers in the league is Mitrovic. Uh, I believe – I do not want to get this wrong. I believe he is Serbian, Okay. Um, which I'm going to bring this up because it's important to me because that is my sleeper World Cup team. Oh. Let me look at this. Yeah. So when you say they came up this year, I've obviously I have heard of Fulham because I know they've been in the Premier League in the past. They were a they were a bring up club with Nottingham Forest and who was the other one this year? Bournemouth. Bournemouth. Yeah, they were the third one. Okay, the other ones don't have three wins. That's kind of I guess. I mean, I guess that's a good way to put it. I mean, Bournemouth does have two. West uh, watched the one Nottingham sure. Forest victory. I did that. It hadn't gone well since. It doesn't look like, but hey, three wins, three wins. No, it's it's huge. I mean, and they you know they took a point off of Liverpool in the first week, and they've you know they've kind of done what you really have to do. Uh, a team coming up is when you play teams that are similar or lesser than you, you have to beat them. Like you can't draw; you have to win those games, and they've done that uh, really, you know, kind of decisively. They they've been pretty they've been pretty damn good in games, so they needed to be. And yeah, Mitrovic is Serbian. Okay. Uh, he he's been amazing for them early on, and then uh, you know they they've got a pretty I don't want to say they're not stacked, obviously, but they've got a pretty deep roster of guys who are like quality enough to play in this league. And they've been very impressive. Looking at it, the thing that's uh, concerning, you know, you were talking about what a disaster Manchester United was again, still very early, but in the points, they are in fifth place with 12 points, one behind Brighton with uh, who is in fourth place. But uh, Chelsea's two points behind with 10. And I thought they were kind of supposed to be the third ish or fourth best team here. Again, they sit in seventh very early in the season, but like, what what's their issue? I know every so much. It seemed like so much was made with Man City being a uh, dumpster, or excuse me, Man United like being kind of a, a clown show. Well, Chelsea's behind yeah. them. What what's going on there? Well, they fired their coach. I don't know. If you oh hell that. yes, we talked. We talked. Talk, we talked about that. No, there's six no, matches actually, in. That's got to be a. That, no, I, I yeah. know it's not a record. I'm not. I'm going to stop myself. But that that yes, that seems swift. Not. I don't even think it was a record for this year. I think someone else got <laughs> fired before him. Uh, so they, so they got rid of Tuchel. They got they brought in um, actually Brighton's manager, Graham Potter. He's an English guy. Like um, ex-Brighton manager Bright- or hired him away? Like hired him away from Brighton. Wait, Brighton's He's in already- through six matches, and this guy went from Brighton to Chelsea? Yes, yes. Holy definitely. hell, is that is that normal? Yeah, that's normal. I mean, that's like going from, I mean, like a mid-tier – program in college football to, to, you know, to go coach Michigan or coach Ohio State. I mean, Chelsea's like a top six club, one of the biggest in the world. Brighton, though but, they've been competitive the past few years. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's like, you know, Brian Kelly left and they almost could have won a national play the national championship and went to LSU. But he didn't uh, do it the exact September. same thing. Like, what if Kiffin started to <laughs> last year or they'll miss? It was like, actually, guys, I'm taking the LSU gig. They just fired up. Yeah. No, I mean, I get it from that standpoint. Yeah, no, I, I've actually really never thought about it like that. I guess it's like, you know, a baseball manager. I, 
you know what? You're right. It's a little it's weirder a now that I think it's about just it. Weird. Yeah. Like, they'll play each other eventually. Yes, they will. I, but I, soccer, it's such a – it's like a year-round sport. You right. know, there's so many different competitions that I feel like there's only so much time where these coaches, you know, if you fire a coach, you have to go find someone somewhere. There's no you know, I think the NFL, Yeah, there's no silly season. It's not like college football or NFL or even Major League Baseball. Like, I mean, those guys, you have the Black Monday for Major League Baseball. Like, you don't fire – you know, the White Sox wouldn't fire – Tony LaRusso and that Tony LaRusso is still their coach. Yeah. He's still, you know, sleepwalking through that job. And then and then go hire, you know, whoever the Orioles manager is. Like you wouldn't do that. Um, this is such a year-round deal. There's only so many, you know, coaches that are quality enough for a club like Chelsea that yeah, they went and got him. So yeah, they'll be playing each other uh eventually. I never really thought about it like the way you brought it that way, but yeah, that's happening. Now, can I ask this? Is it is this the same recency bias that you get in college football? Like, did they hire him because he's good, or did they hire him because, wow, Brighton, fourth place? Well, no, he's – I mean, well, I think it's a combination of how good they've been this year and last year okay. and really kind of like the players they have. I mean, that's – a Brighton team is, like, good. They're not, like, a fluke. They are legitimately good. They've been legitimately coached well with a real roster – and Chelsea, they've been bought by a new a new group, this American uh, American bottom, Todd Bully. He's been making some serious headlines this week. We'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. no, it's not like a strike while the fire is hot kind of deal. Like you know, he, he's really worth he's worth it. He's a really good coach. Um, I think Chelsea has some kind of some some roster issues, uh, but no, I think he he was the right hire. But their their owner. Bully came out with this deal saying that he wanted to have a Premier League All-Star game to help fund some of the other leagues. And that made the Brits go absolutely insane. I mean, they were like, what, who the fuck is this guy? And why are we talking? Like, they hate, they hate him already. (laughs) He's like the American, like, you know, some of these American owners, like they, they own the team and then they kind of like stay out of the way. Like this guy is like, jerry jones-esque like he's come in and is like hey premierly it's been doing this for however many years like well, why don't we just think about this and everyone's like shut the fuck up like who yeah. are you what are you doing like don't just stop like we are now officially all gonna hate chelsea because of you know i have no idea if this happened but i hope that owner the week after you know the, the last week when the games were canceled was like what do you mean the games are canceled because this lady died? I don't get it. And just completely just like shit on the monarchy. That would just be the most American thing of all time. I like this guy now. I'm not a Chelsea fan, but I would like to keep, I would like to keep pissing people off. I would like for him to continue disrupting things. That sounds amazing. So let's just get right to it. You mentioned he made other news. Like what is that? Was that it? What, what, what's going on with this dude? That, that was it. He brought up the Super League again, saying that you know, he doesn't think it's completely dead. And if you remember, that was the league yeah. where like, you know, all the top clubs are going to join each other with no relegation and like basically screw like the you know most historic sport in the world. They're just going to, you know, completely blow it up um, for money. Because it's clear like he's he bought this team you know, as an investment, not as, you know, because of like the love of the game for the lack of a better term. And he's trying to do what he can to make good on his investment. And that's going to make people hate you. <laughs> you know, that that's not what you want to see. So yeah, he, he's had a pretty tough tenure for, and in British media is relatively unfair and pretty mean, but I think he is kind of deserving. And so, because he doesn't seem like he really, you know, gives a shit necessarily. They are hysterically mean. I honestly kind of love it and respect it. Um, last thing before we get out of here, I guess. Look, we I'm looking at the bottom of the league. Nothing 
nothing too terribly surprising other than at least Chester City uh, or Leicester City, however you say it, you know, Phoenix <clears throat> removed from uh, winning the Premier League is just in, in terrible shape. They're, they're dumpster fire. Are they going down? Is that is that how that's going to work? I mean, they've been enough matches and enough of a, you know, an idea of what you've seen so far to, to think that they're definitely in contention to go down. I mean, when you look at the bottom, you know, West Ham has been terrible this year and they, they've been a pretty solid club. The past few years, they've invested a lot of money, and their their manager's a good manager. They've been awful in in Europa in their you know Europa League competition. This comp in, in the Premier League have been terrible. Nottingham Forest, you know, they're the team that bought about twenty set. They bought twenty seven players before the season started, and they've still been shit. Um, so I, I think those three are definitely along with Wolves, and I would say Aston Villa or like teams i really they're gonna be fighting it out for probably the, the, the remainder of the season to see who goes down Bournemouth is kind of dead cat there at 12 I expect them to kind of falter off uh quite a bit towards okay. the end but uh, uh yeah you know it's it's a long season there's a lot of games to be played but you're definitely kind of seeing things matriculate up and down uh for both sides the last thing I was going to ask you, you brought up Wolves and West Ham. They played seven matches and scored three goals. Do the fans get super antsy when it's that kind of boring, you know, brand of product? Because I, if I was a season, it can goal, be. They scored three goals. I'd be like, what the hell is this? I don't even care if we've drawn four times. I get that Brits love the tie, but like that, that seems awful to watch. Well, like it, it's a tough because I mean, Wolves, they, they've been a team that like never scores a lot of goals. That's kind of who they are. They've just been kind of a defensive minded, you know, controlling team. West Ham has like real goal scorers. And they bought a, you know, a pretty expensive striker from Italy who has been pretty good for them, but they just have just been in terrible form in the Premier League. Uh, but I mean, you could also look at the other hand, you know, Leicester scored 10 goals, but their goals against is 22. <laughs> so that's a pretty bad ratio. So, you know, you got to be at least one or the other. Um, so it, it's tough to, you know, get too disappointed. But yeah, I mean, I would say the result is more important than the look. You know, there's Atletico Madrid has been an incredible club in Spain for years. I mean, they've won it over Barcelona and, and Real Madrid a few times. They've been in the Champions League final. And they win like damn near every match 1-0. Like that's like their thing. Uh, so I think it's always more about the result and not necessarily the style of play for a lot of fans. He is Weldon Rodenberg. This has been Soccer Corner, the fastest growing segment on American soil. Good stuff as always, my friend. And uh, we'll chat uh, next Sunday. Yeah, absolutely, man. See ya. All right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, I appreciate you making this podcast a part of your day as usual. We'll be back with Buchanan on Wednesday. And then I'm not sure what on Friday, but we'll, uh, of course, we'll have fresh cuts and our picks, but we'll have something else. I don't know if we're going to do anything on Tulsa or not, but uh, something interesting. I can promise you that. Appreciate you guys listening as always. Um, looking forward to a fun couple months as football season really gets in full swing. You'll have a great start to your week and we'll holler at you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.